Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The federal government spends about $25 billion a year on the Housing Choice Voucher Program. It's the nation's largest program designed to assist families with the cost of housing. Now, the program only reaches about one quarter of those who are eligible because its funding is capped, but still, it helps more than a million families and more than two million children obtain safe, affordable private housing. When we talk about social determinants of health, housing is almost always at the top of the list. Certainly, safe, stable housing is a key ingredient for attaining good health. But what do we know about the relationship between receiving a housing voucher and health? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm speaking with Sandra Newman, professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Newman and co-authors published a paper in the February 2024 issue of Health Affairs, That issue focuses exclusively on the relationship between housing and health. Dr. Newman's paper reports on the results of a randomized controlled trial of the Housing Choice Voucher Program with a particular focus on family stress. They found that receiving a housing voucher is associated with significant reductions in parental stress, and they explored the reasons the program has these benefits. We'll discuss the findings in much more detail in today's episode. Dr. Newman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on with me to talk about a topic that people in healthcare know is important, but probably most have little exposure to actually what we do in this country to to try to provide people with affordable housing. I noted in the opening that the Housing Choice Voucher Program is the largest governmental program to assist families. Can you explain a little bit more about it, uh, particularly how does it work? Who gets it? Uh, What are the benefits of receiving a voucher? Absolutely. Well, I'm very glad that in your introductory comments, you referred to the fact that all forms of assisted housing, including the voucher program, only serve about a quarter of the income eligible individuals. And this has a big implication for all the programs, but especially for the voucher program. So we know that the supply of affordable housing is extremely small relative to the demand. And therefore, the public housing authorities that run the voucher program have many, many more applicants for the voucher program than they have units for those individuals to live in. And what this means is that there are very long waiting lists to get into the voucher program and that the call for applications only happens uh, intermittently in some large cities. It could take as much as 10 to 15 years for a waiting list to be open. So you have this context of tremendous demand for the vouchers. In terms of the eligibility rules, the typical safety net programs like Medicaid or TANF or SNAP usually are based on the federal poverty line, Uh, Assisted housing programs are not. They use a relative standard. That relative standard is less than 50% of the metropolitan area income. So that's the income eligibility for vouchers. There are housing quality standards. So when the potential tenant finds a housing unit in the market, 
a professional inspector from the public housing authority has to go look at that unit, make sure it meets quality standards. If it does not, there may be a negotiation with the landlord about uh, making repairs. So an interesting interaction there. In addition, the rents on the properties, on the units, need to fall at or below what's called a fair market rent. Those are set for every housing market area. They are currently at or below the 40th percentile rent in an area. So that's just a bit below the median rent. You can think about it that way. The tenant rent and utilities both are limited to 30% of the tenant's income. So once the tenant pays 30% of their income, the government pays the rest up to that fair market rent. And the rents are actually paid directly from the government to the landlord, so they're a form of vendor payment. Also, as a deviation from the private market, there is an annual income certification, so every tenant has to submit information about their income, and also an annual housing quality inspection, which, of course, private market units, although many locales, many jurisdictions uh, have on the books the need for uh, code enforcement and inspections on a periodic basis, uh, that rarely actually occurs in any regular way. Obviously, uh, we as a health policy journal are focused on the health implications of this program, and your paper is too. But primarily, this is a housing program, and you mentioned the difference between the voucher structure and the public housing that many of us are used to from decades ago. Just as a general matter, is the field of housing fairly positive about the benefits of this program in meeting people's housing needs relative to the older methods of projects and the like? I think the the housing world is generally positive about vouchers and about project-based, both the public housing and uh, what's called private assisted housing. These are private owners who receive concessionary financing to offer lower uh, lower than market rent. So that's a somewhat more complicated program. I think what happens is that the media pick up on the most troubled and most distressed, typically public housing projects that gets a lot of attention. And what's lost in that is that the lion's share of assisted housing is really doing what it's supposed to do. And certainly in these days of relentless shortages of affordable housing, this has been a tremendous resource to many families, but many are still waiting. Right. And so this is, of course, such a contrast in the health field. We're used to programs like Medicaid and Medicare being entitlements. If you're eligible, you get the benefit. What you describe is far from that and more akin, say, in healthcare to a waiting list for a Medicaid waiver service. If you have a child with a disability, you may also be on a waiting list for 10 years for those kinds of services. But in the largest dimensions of our public programs in healthcare, they are entitlements and you would not have these kinds of uh, waiting lists that you describe. Well, let's uh, move into the health dimensions as your paper is focused on parental stress you hypothesize that there is this pathway from participating in the Housing Choice Voucher Program to having lower levels of family stress. Sounds sort of simple, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, Tell me a little bit about why there might be a connection between a housing program and a family's health. 
we can think about the voucher as really a black box. I mean, it is a subsidy, but what does that actually mean? And for my colleagues and myself uh, to get our arms around this, what we have done is to unpack what a housing voucher actually does, what it actually provides. And to do this, uh, we looked at what is memorialized in federal housing legislation and regulations to see what the program is supposed to do. And once we do this, it's, it makes more sense to suppose that these features could have an impact on family stress. So in this paper, we look at three key features, all in legislation, uh, housing affordability. And for this, we define this as HUD defines it for assisted housing, which is a rent that does not exceed 30% of the tenant's income. The idea is that if the family's cost constraint is relaxed, which it certainly should be uh, since a voucher now is worth at least $10,000 a year, and the family can live in physically adequate housing and in a safe neighborhood, then it's plausible that a voucher could reduce family stress. And I might add that these are only three of the features of the voucher. Another one that you mentioned in the opening was housing stability, and we are certainly interested in that as well. Why housing stability might be greater with a voucher or other assisted housing? First, because assisted housing has more provisions to protect against unwarranted eviction, but also it could operate through affordability. That is, that if a family does not have uh, assistance, it is plausible that they're continually moving from one unit to another, either as the rent goes up or because the units are simply unaffordable and they have to find another place. So we couldn't study stability in this particular iteration because our families that actually use the voucher to rent a unit um, had been there for only a short period of time, but it's certainly on the list for a future analysis. It's great to have you lay out the different dimensions that could lead to better family health outcomes. Why don't you just jump into sort of the top-line finding? You've given the rationale for program participation reducing stress. Uh, Did you find evidence of that? We did find that two of these unpacked features of the voucher, housing affordability and, uh, to a lesser extent, uh, daytime neighborhood safety, each of these reduced parent stress. And parent stress is one of the ways in which we are defining family stress for this paper. I noted already that affordability is the limitation to 30% of the income, and that affordability has a stronger effect than uh, the neighborhood safety. And if uh, listeners could imagine for a moment a graph in which the x-axis has our affordability measure, and we measure this as the percent of income to rent. So imagine this scale goes from zero to 10% to 20% to 30%. That's your fraction of income to rent. And then on the vertical or y-axis, we have a score on the parent stress uh, measure. Now, this is a scale, so it goes from low stress at the bottom uh, going up to higher stress scores. And what we find is a nonlinear relationship between affordability and parent stress. So that 
results in a U shape. And very intriguingly, the bottom point of that U is 30% of income. So at the 30% housing cost burden point, that is where you have the lowest parent stress. And if you can think still about that uh, U shape, if you go up on the right side of the U, obviously that's when housing cost burden is going up. So it's understandable that parent stress would be going up. But on the other side of the U, that's going in the direction of lower cost burden. So why is parent stress going up when it's a lower cost burden? And we think that what's going on here is that our families are low income. In fact, many are very low income. And if a family with a very low income is devoting less than 30% of their low income for rent, they're probably not living in very uh, safe and sanitary housing and safe neighborhoods. So we think that is why we see this uh, U-shape. Well, I want to talk to you a little more about what you found in this relationship. Uh, We'll do that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Sandra Newman about the evidence showing a linkage between receiving a housing voucher and family health, particularly parental stress. Before the break, we learned that indeed there is that relationship, particularly when there's a relief of financial pressure and opportunity to live in a safer neighborhood. As we try to understand this finding a little better, I do want to pause and ask How do you know whether or not a family is facing stress? What were your measures here? So the first thing I want to say about that is that family stress is sort of a misnomer. So in this study, virtually all of the heads of households are mothers. Uh, So you've got a mother living with children and potentially others in in the household. So when we're talking about family stress, we're really talking about the mother's stress. For this paper, we defined family or mother's stress in four ways. First, uh, the mother's reports of hypertension or high blood pressure. Second, we've been talking about parent stress, so higher parent stress. And this refers to parents' feelings about the challenges associated with parenting. So they read a number of different declaratives like parenting is harder than I thought it would be. The third dimension is mother's mental health problems. And here we asked about self-reports of symptoms of depression, like feeling hopeless and symptoms of anxiety, such as feeling overwhelmed by worry. And then finally, a parent-child conflict and discipline scale. And this uh, scale runs the gamut from a kind of passive giving kids timeouts to a more psychologically aggressive approach of shouting or yelling, and then finally to corporal punishment like spanking. What we ended up finding was that reports of hypertension and parent stress, so two of these four measures, were significantly lower among the treatment group here, the families that were offered a voucher and also the families that used the voucher. 
as we talked already, the affordability feature of the voucher was an important mechanism for reducing parent stress. Daytime safety in the neighborhood also was a pathway to reducing parent stress. Now, we don't tend to focus a lot on methods in this podcast, but it is worth noting this is an experiment. We don't have a lot of experiments in social policy. They're hard to construct. They're expensive. But it does give us a pretty high level of confidence in these findings. Can you just say a word or two about the structure here so people can understand why this evidence is stronger than the kind of correlation you might find in a traditional observational study? What's happened here is that the public housing authorities that we have partnered with in this study allocate their vouchers by lottery, by a random assignment, and we work with them to make sure that this was truly random. And what we ended up doing was selecting uh, randomly a group of mothers and children at baseline, they were three to 10 years old, uh, who would receive the offer of a voucher and randomly selecting a group of controls, that is uh, mothers with children three to 10, who we knew would not receive the offer of a voucher in the first year of this study. As it turns out, the study has been going on now for several years. And as of a couple of years ago, uh, we did not have any crossovers or people from the control group ending up receiving a voucher, though after the first year, they're able to apply for any assisted housing program they wish to. What's important here is that all of the issues associated with background characteristics and where people are living and so on, these are things that we are always struggling to control for in quasi-experiments or general social science analysis, multivariate regression, and so on. But in a randomized control trial or experiment, these are assumed to be controlled for. Now, we take extra care, and actually when we do our analyses, we do control for some of these, but we also uh, know through our analysis that the randomization worked well. We have no significant differences between our treatment voucher group and the control group. So this is strong evidence, and given that, I guess I'd ask you, as we come to the end of our conversation, to step back again. You really are a housing expert. We have a lot of people in healthcare who, as I said at the introduction, are keenly aware of the importance of housing. We have a lot of healthcare systems right now trying to do interventions to improve the housing for the patients that they serve so that they can be healthier, live healthier, recover better from medical treatment that they get, a whole host of reasons. If you were sitting in a room with all of these healthcare experts who want to do something good about housing so that the people they serve are healthier, between not just this study, because you know much more about housing than just this study, um, what kind of guidance would you give them? What would you say they ought to focus on? I have to say that affordability, I think, is first and foremost, and that is not only a strong finding from this study. Of course, this is the very first set of analyses we've done with uh, these experimental data. There's much more to do. But nonetheless, affordability emerges again here as very important. In other work that my colleague Scott Holupka and I have done, Uh, What we have looked at is a pathway from affordability 
to child enrichment expenditures. So what is happening is with a voucher, the family's discretionary income has gone up. And we have found using the panel study of income dynamics, consumer expenditure survey, that the family is devoting at least some of that greater discretionary income to enrichment, which includes games and books and outings, and that that enrichment has a beneficial effect on the child's cognitive skills. So when we actually give cognitive testing in math problems and in, in, in reading in English to the kids who have received this uh, benefit of affordability and enrichment, they have better cognitive scores than the kids who have not received that. So affordability uh, seems to have a very pervasive effect. It is, I think, one of the main features of all assisted housing programs. There's always debate within the housing field as to what is operating on what. Affordability is definitely something everyone agrees to. And an implication of all of this is that there is always interest in tinkering with one or another aspect of assisted housing. From time to time, even the affordability of assisted housing has been adjusted, not very frequently, but several times. And I think the uh, finding on daytime neighborhood safety is also very provocative, especially in this study, because unlike some other special interventions where uh, researchers are working with public housing authorities to do special interventions with intensive case management, intensive counseling, and so on. This is These two, the PHAs we have worked with here, um, have not provided intensive search assistance, counseling, or other services. And nonetheless, these tenants who were able to secure a decent and uh, affordable place in the market have found units that they characterize as being safe. Voucher programs, like other programs, have site and neighborhood standards, taking a look at those, making sure that those are as strong as they can be, appropriate as they can be, and also how they are implemented, how they are enforced. I know it's very difficult to enforce them, but that that is a whole other area to look into, I believe. Wow. It's just so interesting to hear the multiple pathways because what starts as a fairly simple, yes, more stable housing, better housing is good for health. It's just clear from this study and then the additional insights you gave about child development that there are multiple relationships here and they are complex. It's also striking to me that although, of course, $25 billion on the voucher program is a lot, it's a lot less than we spend. It's a fraction of what we spend on our health programs. And it'll be very interesting to see, in addition to all of the other benefits that aren't health-related, what kinds of health benefits we could see if we uh, made some real progress on the the housing availability and the housing uh, cost problems. As we come to a close, I just wonder, you mentioned that this is the first analysis out of the data. If you could just finish up by telling me If there are some other questions that you're getting ready to answer, I'd love to know uh, what else you think you can find in the evidence coming out of this experiment. We are very, very interested in children's and mothers' mental health effects 
And for children, we want to look at self-regulation, executive function, impulse control, their self-reported anxiety and depression, and of course, uh, cognitive skills. We're also uh, very interested in the different pathways, as, as we mentioned, so this affordability to child enrichment, which we'll be able to do in the future, looking at uh, housing stability as well. High on our list is looking at uh, the trade-off decisions that low-income families are forced to make when they are choosing a residential setting. Uh, we've actually started on this work and already see the important voucher effect on allowing mothers to come a lot closer to achieving the goals for their family and their kids uh, compared to the control group. And I guess just a, a final point is that we're very interested in looking at the mothers who were actually able to find and move into housing with their voucher. In our study, about 60% of the sample who were offered the voucher were actually able to comply, that is to uh, move into a housing unit lease with the voucher. question is, why don't 100% or 95%? I mean, this is an amazing boon. Well, we know that there are serious problems of affordable housing, so that's one uh, potential issue. But our mothers seem to succeed, and we're very interested in looking at what accounts for this? Uh, what is their resourcefulness or their formal or informal support that they're receiving or what else is going on? So that will affect all of the work that we do on the study. Well, Dr. Newman, thank you so much for this really important work for greatly expanding certainly my understanding of the relationship between housing and health and for the painstaking work of doing this as an experiment so that we can have higher levels of confidence in the results. I am certain we will benefit from this in many ways, and it's really great to see this evidence-based approach to understanding a quite complex social dynamic. I appreciate the work that you're doing, and today I'm particularly grateful that you were my guest on a Health Policy. Well, it's my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.